Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, Ireland and Empire, as we debate how being a colony shaped our history and our own involvement in imperial pursuits around the world. You can email us your thoughts and views to talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we looked at the life, legacy and legend of Napoleon Bonaparte as we debated whether he was a ruthless tyrant or the greatest Frenchman of all time. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Launching Jane Olmar's new book, Making Empire, Ireland, Imperialism and the Early Modern World, Minister Simon Harris noted on Tuesday that the book challenges old views and presents new ideas about how we understand our shared history on this island. And so to discuss Ireland and empire and the lessons for today, especially relevant, I think, in a time of Brexit and culture wars about statues and buildings and our relationship with empire and slavery, I'm delighted to introduce our panel of experts. Professor Jane Olmeyer is Erasmus Smith, Professor of Modern History at Trinity College Dublin and is the author of the new book, Making Empire, Ireland, Imperialism and the Early Modern World, published in hardback by Oxford University Press. Professor Brian McGing is Regis Professor of Greek Emeritus at Trinity College Dublin and is an expert on ancient imperialism, particularly the Roman Empire. Professor Mihola Shukru is the head of the School of Histories and Humanities at Trinity College Dublin and is an expert on Oliver Cromwell and the wider history of 17th century Ireland. And he was one of the editors of Oxford's The Letters, Writings and Speeches of Oliver Cromwell. Well, you're all very welcome. And Jane, I might begin with you because uh, maybe I begin with something that uh, the Irish Times uh, called you uh, when they reviewed your book. One of the most influential Irish historians of the 21st century. You can just retire now. <laughs> Patrick, I'm in good company, of course. I mean, I was completely, I don't know what to say to that. It leaves me speechless. But I love the fact that historians can shape agendas and should be shaping agendas. And whether it's around policy or uh, thinking in the world today, um, I think we all want to do that. And certainly um, with my writing, I focus on the early modern period and it's really thinking all the time. And Brian, of course, is a classicist, how we can say stuff that actually is relevant to today. And why is this suddenly so topical? Because I was struck by something that you said at the launch last week, you, you know, about how, you know, you've been working on this for a long time, but now this is the the issue of our time. There's such public interest in it. It's topical. It relates to questions about denaming and renaming buildings and taking down statues, that this really is the subject of the, of the great historical topic. It, it is, Patrick, and never did I think 30 years ago that empire would become so fashionable. I think in the UK, it really gathered steam around the statues must fall, especially, of course, the Rhodes statue in Oriel College in Oxford. And that had been prompted, if you want, by a movement in Cape Town with the South African students wanting to get rid of the statue of Rhodes. And then it spelled, you know, it really spread to other statues 
predominantly in the UK and, of course, the United States. I think the US is really um, in a very, uh, uh, I mean, tense and, and difficult moment. But a lot of their um, uh, controversy goes back to enslavement and how the US has not really dealt with the legacies of of slavery. And then, of course, that has gone over into the Statues Must Fall campaigns. But also, I think the murder of George Floyd really was a trigger uh, in terms of how Ireland began to engage with some of these uh, issues. Um, And, you know, here we are now three years later, and it's very interesting to see how toxic that conversation is in the UK, the US and increasingly across continental Europe. And obviously it's challenging here in Ireland, but there's been a maturity uh, to engage with issues around empire, which is really um, fabulous to see. And these, this this book originated as the Ford Lectures. Now that's a hugely prestigious lecture series in Oxford. Uh, I think you were the first Irish-based historian based on the islands who had done it in what forty years? I think. Yeah, I was the first since FSL Lyons did it in the the nineteen seventies. So giving the Ford Lectures um, is scary uh, because you know it's it's obviously there it's a, a big deal, and I was hugely honoured to be invited. But because of COVID, I couldn't give them in Oxford, so I had to. Um, uh, give them online. Uh, four of them were in Trinity, two of them in Ivy House, Department of Foreign Affairs, that were filmed without an audience. But it meant, of course, that instead of the 30 or 40 people that would come on a Friday afternoon to hear them in Oxford itself, they've now attracted really global audiences. And I think that's maybe one reason why there's been such interest in the book as well. But you mentioned, you know, we're approaching these issues with a new maturity. But I remember some of the reaction on Twitter at the time. And some people were really triggered by some of the things you were saying. Some people were really enraged because it didn't fit with their idea of Ireland being the colonised and, and being victimised by empire. The idea that there was also Irish being involved in it was something they did not want to listen to, they did not want to hear, they did not want to engage with. And some of the reactions, they, I, I remember screenshotting some of them because the rage was, you know, it was extraordinary. It really was extraordinary. And I don't know if anybody's been trolled on social media, but it's not pleasant. Um, But obviously, these people are a minority. And what I was also very struck by, uh, there was an op-ed in the Irish Times that triggered that sort of uh, fury and onslaught, was uh, how many people wrote to me saying, oh, thank God we're having this conversation now. I was born in a former colony. Um, uh, Many um, uh, members of my family served in the British Army, served... Uh, in sort of colonial administrations. And it was almost as if now people have permission to talk about these things uh, in a very normal way without shame. And I think that is really important as well, Patrick. Brian, you're a classicist, but your work deals with empire. But you also had a brilliant letter in the Irish Times over the summer uh, where you had some really fantastic lines. And one of your uh, lines was that the British Empire was not a legitimate form of government. And you really engaged with those who try to minimise the 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 evil of empire and its legacy and try to pretend that it was actually a force for good or at least something that was neutral. And it was very interesting to see a classicist taking on some of these modern debates. Yes, I mean, the main reason is uh, is the Roman Empire, actually, and that's my uh, my main interest. But it was also one of the uh, almost obsessive interests of uh, 19th century British historians. Uh, and at that time, I think... What are now I would see as two separate zones of conversation, the zone of serious historians and the zone of uh, political um, patriotism, really. 
they, they're very separate now, but in the 19th century, they completely overlapped. Macaulay and the other major historians of the 19th century were also the, uh, aligned completely with the political elite. That is very different uh, now. And I suppose what I was responding to uh, in that letter was that other zone of political patriotism. I mean, we have two uh, modern, distinguished modern historians here, and they would know better than I. But um, hey, on the whole, I don't think, uh, Jane, do they modern historians worry about was the British Empire a good thing or a bad thing, or any more than ancient historians worry was the Roman Empire good or bad? It was what it was, and we study the myriad of reactions that Jane is studying in this uh, in this new book. I mean, we do the same thing, really, with the, the Roman Empire. So what I was responding to was in many ways, the dishonesty of uh, the uh, political zone of political patriotism, because it's dishonest because it does not uh, confront the evidence. It just ignores evidence. And that divide is very strong in Britain because, mm. you know, for a politician like Boris Johnson, it would be, you know, to use your phrase, it would be unpatriotic to, to criticise the empire because that's the foundation of so many of the myths they try to project about, about their identity and about their history and about the greatness of their past. Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, Boris Johnson wrote a book about the Roman Empire, which is very lively, but he does ask his big question is, how come the Romans created stability in Europe? He just completely ignores that at least a big part of the answer to that question is they created stability by killing millions, literally millions of people and cowing the others into submission. But that just doesn't come into uh, the equation at all. And, and we were saying that at the launch of, uh, of, of Jane's book, uh, that uh, it is about violence. But I mean, that's that's a given. Empires have almost invariably, I would say, uh, been, been fundamentally violent. They control the, the, the means of violence and they, they exercise it for their own benefit. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's a, a terribly uh, novel interpretation or anything, but it, it does not align with the, uh, the, the zone of uh, political patriotism. Yeah, I think we could almost do an entire show on Boris Johnson's historical <laughs> writings yeah. then. And, oh, I've got uh, lots of other quotes from Boris. <laughs> yeah, like uh, the, the EU is the evil empire, but the Roman <laughs> Empire, that was the force for good and progress and change. And Julius and... Caesar, one of, his, one of his best mates, uh, Julius Caesar's a model for uh, of, of modern leadership and you need that sort of firmness. Julius Caesar, the ancient sources aren't reliable on numbers, but in his conquest of Gaul, later sources say there were three million Gauls he was facing. He killed one million, he enslaved one million, and there was a million left who are remain civilized. I mean, this is Julius Caesar. I, I, that recognition, actually, in classics has really only come in the last generation or so. I mean, the evidence was there, but we didn't really think holy smoke, what do we do with, you know, how do we teach Julius Caesar? This is a man of enormous violence, horrific violence. Uh. Michal, it is fascinating the way we are engaging with these questions in, I think, a different way than we would have, you know, 20 years ago or perhaps even, you know, 15 years ago. No, I, I totally agree. And it goes back, perhaps, Patrick, to your initial question, why now and why we really take an interest now. But, but I think it goes way beyond 
the shores of this island and indeed Britain or America. I mean, we're dealing with the legacies of empire everywhere. Wars in Eastern Europe, in the Middle East at the moment. This is all goes back to these great empires as they were seen in the 18th and 19th centuries. And we're still dealing with, with the fallout of that today. Now, you know, obviously we're aware in Ireland that people see it. Are we, are we colonial? Are we now in a post-colonial phase? We still have Northern Ireland. You know, where does that fit into the picture in terms of trying to understand our colonial past? So, so we're very aware of it here, I think. Um, but I, I, I think we're now seeing more than ever just the legacy of violence and and the violence that comes with it. And it goes really to Brian's point. And, and there's a wonderful book by Caroline uh, Elkins, A Legacy of Violence, which, which really just systematically goes through uh, just the sheer genocidal scale of what was going on here. And it's absolutely jaw-dropping. And I think at times we, we don't really address that or really sort of think about that and the impact it had on countries across the globe. Yeah, because there's a phrase that she has, legalised lawlessness. Mm. And when you think of it like that, it really shows that what was pretending to be a, a legal framework that was providing order and stability actually was uh, doing something very differently entirely. Well, I think that the, the phrase that always is, is law and order. And I think the emphasis should be on order because that's really what it was about. It was about control. And the way you controlled was through violence. And and in a way, I think the British Empire in particular sort of lauds that, you know, it's legal basis and it was all, we have the you know, common law and it's all about law, etc. But it was law in the interests of the elite, in the interest of British power. It, it was not in the interest of the people who were experiencing it. So, you know, we, we, we've got all sorts of different uh, interpretations and so much, as you know, Patrick, is based on where we're standing. And it really struck me recently when King Charles was over in Kenya uh, and we know, I mean, of the awful things were done during the 1950s in Kenya and even still, there's no apology coming. They just simply are not prepared to acknowledge and accept the reality of what it meant. And, and that, to me, is, is still an issue. It's still a problem. And going to what Jane was saying about, you know, we're trying to deal with this legacy, we're dealing with the statues and we're dealing with various other issues around it. But there's a fundamental problem, which is that the elites are still not prepared to accept the reality of what empire actually meant. But Jane, I think what confuses me maybe is that I'm not really sure where Ireland fits into this because as you show, Ireland was England's first colony. It was a laboratory for empire where they were able to test out their ideas and test out frameworks when it came to law or uh, things to do with the land. And, you know, so you have all of this you know, experimentation going on. But then you also have Ireland being involved in it. So I'm not entirely sure whether we're we're the victims of this or whether we're also partly becoming a, a victimised or an oppressor ourselves. It's a complex story, Patrick. Uh, and the answer is it's both. Um, so to just follow up on what Michal was saying, on the one hand, Ireland was, you know, colonised in a very, very violent and brutal way. It was about... Uh, settler uh, colonialism. Uh, it was about the exploitation of Irish land and labour. It was about uh, doing so in an extraordinarily violent way. You look at the late 16th century, you look at the mid 17th century, you look at the later 17th century, you know, the atrocities that were committed uh, that can, they don't use the word genocide, but that is exactly what is happening in an Irish context. So, uh, you know, let's not kid ourselves. Ireland is a colony and was very brutally colonised. However, Ireland was also an integral part of the British 
Empire. Now, in this period, it's not really a British empire. In the 17th century, it's very much driven from London. Uh, it's very much an English empire. Uh, and people are doing it not for ideological reasons, usually, but simply because they, you know, the economic opportunity um, uh, or because, uh, you know, they're just looking uh, to, uh, you know, to survive. What is interesting, however, is those who do opt to become part of the British Empire, both Catholics and Protestants, can be very successful. Um, and we see that across the Caribbean. We see that uh, in India uh, uh, and, of course, in, in North America as well. But let's also remember there are many, especially the indentured servants, who go in their tens of thousands from the 1620s, especially uh, to the Atlantic, are treated um, in the most appalling uh, way. It's not chattel slavery, but it's the next step up. Uh, and that uh, suffering and misery was very real in, indeed. And I've been very struck that, you know, a third of those uh, uh, indentured servants were, were female. So, it's, you know, how do we recover their experiences as well as those of who, who prosper? And I would just say one other thing. It's always important to remember it's not just the English slash British Empire. We see the Irish all over the empires of the early modern world, especially Spain, Portugal. Remember the Irish in the Amazon in the 1620s as part of that Portuguese slash Dutch uh, colonial enterprise. Um, but they're also there with the Danes in the 18th century and, of course, the French Empire as well. And that's where their Catholicism helps uh, them because many will have uh, uh, immigrated uh, to continental Europe uh, uh, in the wake of often of expropriation and confiscation um, and, and political um, uh, uh, exile in Ireland and have made their way uh, up the administrations in France or Spain. And some of them are hugely successful then as part of the Spanish uh, Atlantic Global Empire uh, or, or the French ones. So it's a complicated story, Patrick. And I think there's a third element to it. It's not just that if you want the Irish serve empire, they also become subversives within it. And what you'll see very quickly is actually they may, you know, uh, be out there, uh, uh, if you want, making their fortunes, but they're very then quick to rebel and to side with indigenous peoples. We have that in Mexico with William Lamport. He leads a major rebellion there in 1642 um, and he's actually uh, allying with the indigenous uh, population of Mexico and the black enslaved peoples as well against the Spanish crown. Now, that would be a very early example, but we see that across Latin America uh, with people like Bernardo uh, uh, O'Higgins in, in Chile or William Brown in Argentina. Michal, it really brings home just how important it is to understand the early modern period to really understand what happens afterwards. And I think the decade of centenaries has been great and there's been wonderful commemorations and a wonderful focus and attention. But I think a negative or downside of it is that there's been so much attention given to that and there's so much interest in that. For some students of history now, it, they almost seem to think that Irish history began in 1900. Mm -hmm. And the 19th century is an alien world, never mind the 16th or 17th centuries. And I think unless you understand that earlier period, the, the rest isn't really going to make sense. No, I've been saying this for ages, Patrick, of course. I mean, the 17th century is the most important century of them all, uh, which, which is why I study it. But and, and no, your point is, is well made because I, I think to start, if you like, in 1900 uh, is, is taking things out of context. You need to understand how we got to 1900. 
I agree with you about the decade of centenaries. I think generally they've done an excellent job on it and it was a, a tricky one at times. And I think for the most part, it's been, it's been well done. But perhaps what's been lacking is that longer uh, view and going back into the past and trying to understand how we got to 1916, how we got to 1921, 22. Uh, and that does seem to be lacking. And, you know, uh, I, I think without that, we're really only getting half of the, half of the story. And, and to, to go to Jane's point about, you know, it's complex. And I, I absolutely agree with Jane on that, that it is a complex story. But I, I do think I'm, what slightly concerns me is this attempt at times to kind of create a balance. Oh, well, there was bad on both sides. Or some people were involved, some people weren't involved. I, I don't think history is about, you know, trying to create a, a sort of balance in that sense. I think the vast experience of the vast majority of people was a negative one. There were, of course, people who benefited and in any situation, some people will try to, to do well for themselves, etc. You'd expect that. So that's not really a surprise. But Ireland, right the way through, is being exploited in the interests of empire. And be it economically, in terms of manpower, in terms of its geographic location, etc. It is a servant of empire and it's useful to Britain in that, that regard. So I, I think we need to perhaps just maintain you know, the, the, the over picture while acknowledging absolutely the different experiences that some people had within that empire. And is there a danger that because we know now in the 21st century just how uh, destructive empire was and uh, its pernicious influence and effects that perhaps people back then didn't realise that? So if you said empire to them, they saw it as a as a route towards pros- to prosperity and progress and they saw it as a great adventure and something that was uh, going to be a civilising force. So it didn't have the same negative connotations that the word has today. I, would, I think that's absolutely correct. And we, we know even some of the, 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 the great nationalist leaders, particularly in the 19th century, that the problem wasn't so much with empire. The problem was they felt they were being excluded from the benefits of empire. Uh, and they were saying, listen, you know, if you want us to be loyal servants and be, well, you know, let us in here, let us benefit from all this wonderful, you know, sort of uh, wealth that we're seeing accrued as a result of the empire. And, and to a certain extent, in small ways, some of them were, you know, brought in in that way, but the vast majority weren't. But it, it, absolutely, in a sense, I don't think necessarily that people would have automatically said empire and evil are bad in that way and perhaps the way that we are now looking back over the long durée of this and understanding the full impact that it had. Can I come in just very quickly, Patrick, but what you do see is conflict when it comes to the civilising mission in Ireland. So in other words, they use that word to civilise, we would use the word to anglicise. And there is definitely an extraordinarily strong response to that that you see very much captured in the for the, the bardic poetry, the uh, Irish language um, uh, uh, texts that sort of but you also see that captured very much in the 1641 depositions. In other words, that rebellion in 1641 is literally to get rid of uh, everything English, whether it be livestock or fashions or uh, uh, the, the changes to the landscape, never mind uh, the political and military uh, domination. So I, I think there is a resistance to it, but they may not frame it in the language we use today. And But it's, you know, it's just, just to add that. Well, we're talking history and tonight we are talking about Ireland and empire. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be exploring more our complicated story about our relationship with empire and also what we can learn from studying what women were doing and how they experienced empire and in some cases resisted it. That's all coming up 
right after this. Welcome back. We're talking history and tonight we are talking about Ireland and Empire based around the publication of a brilliant new book Making Empire, Ireland, Imperialism and the Early Modern World published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is Professor Jane Olmar. She joins me on the panel and I'm also joined by Professor Brian McGing, Regis Professor of Greek Emeritus at Trinity College Dublin and Professor Mihola Shukru, the head of the School of Histories and Humanities at Trinity College Dublin. Brian, it is interesting the way these debates though resonate so much today and you know in our own university Trinity there was the denaming of the Berkeley mm-hmm. or Berkeley mm-hmm. Library questions about what to to name it and you know again uh, discussions about well we could name it after someone and then in a few years time we discover they yeah. were a slave owner or an imperialist or something or other and we'll have to like change it again yes yeah well as you were saying and the point Michal was making uh, about how we see things differently I mean uh, in the first half of the 18th century, the, it was really only the beginnings of an anti-slavery movement, and I'm sure Barclay uh, represented the views of his class and uh, and religion on the whole. I have, I, I don't know, but it, it's highly likely because people weren't actually hadn't really got round to questioning uh, slavery. So. The, the process of dealing with the past is it's not one of, of cancelling him. I mean, I think some of the critique of what Trinity was doing was was itself extremely uh, naive. It's, it's, it's not about uh, judging retrospectively, and we, we're fiercely opposed to uh, Bishop Barclay now, and we, we, we can't talk about him. I, I mean, that's nonsense. Uh, we understand what the, uh, the, the impetus behind slavery was and what the thinking was, but it's about now. Uh, I mean, the question would be, why should we continue to um, hold up for admiration a person, who, some of whose views we now find repellent? So it's, it's solely about how we react to the past. It's not about trying to atone for the past or make it better. You can't do that. Historians, serious historians, uh, uh, don't do that anyway. So I think it is that, that our relationship with the past is constantly interesting and 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 Jane's book refines the the the, the simple things and I, I think it's the same actually in the in the study of the Roman Empire that uh, there's a lot that we have moved on in the last uh, generation in understanding Roman imperialism uh, and a lot of it goes to the sort of looking at different sources assess bringing the literature in much more the plays the the poetry and so on and uh, and trying to, where we can, see the lives of ordinary people and how they react to imperial masters or colonial masters, uh, those are fascinating studies. And Brian, was there a similar engagement with the the history writing of the Roman Empire in the same way that you have for uh, the British Empire uh, in the 17th, 18th, later centuries, in the way that Michal and Jane are working on that, did you see something similar when historians approached the Roman Empire? Yeah, well, I think so. I, I mean, uh, as we were saying earlier in the 19th century, they think the Roman Empire is really just the British Empire and the British Empire is just the Roman. I mean, they're almost interchangeable to an extraordinary degree. Uh, and I think it it affected the way historians looked at the Roman Empire because, because the British are decent chaps and we ran a pretty damn decent empire. The Romans were as well. 
And you've got for a long time, actually, uh, an interpretation of Roman imperialism that's called defensive imperialism, which was basically that the Romans weren't aggressive imperialists. They got caught up every now and again, and uh, uh, but they weren't grabbing territory. Well, they went to war almost every year for 300 years. <laughs> it's not a very convincing theory to work with. So we've understood the violence of it. It's become much more sophisticated now with uh, modern political theories of, of, of how the Roman uh, Empire worked. Uh, we're looking much more at culture, the super study of the culture of, uh, of Roman Gaul. Uh, what does it mean to be Romanized? I mean, it's the same to what extent are the Irish Anglicized or the English Hibernicized. Uh, uh, those are uh, uh, fascinating questions, and there's a lot of really interesting work going on rather than just the big issues of, well, was that an aggressive empire or not? We've kind of put that behind us now to move on to uh, other considerations. And at the heart of all of these empires is violence. Well, that yes, seems it is. To be the... yeah. And I think that is, that is really only something that we've come to accept. And it, it's interesting seeing there is a debate about how you teach this. I mean, I taught Greek and Roman history for ages, and I would certainly teach it differently now, uh, having read a lot about the British Empire in uh, recent years and seeing the advances in uh, the study of the Roman Empire. I mean, you really do have to rethink it a bit. Uh, we were uncritically accepting of the rather benign interpretation of uh, the Roman Empire. That's not to say it would have been better without the Romans. I mean, that's one of the pointless things you can say. Uh, the world was a violent place in, in, the, uh, in the, the time of the Roman Empire. Um, and that, that was a debate, actually, were the Romans particularly and uniquely violent? And that, that was a theory of uh, a, a book from 1978, which changed things a lot. But uh, on the whole, people don't agree with that, that they, they simply had a greater capacity, like the British Empire, they had a greater capacity to, to uh, uh, inflict violence. Uh, but everybody else was, was much the same. Uh. Jane, as historians were always led by the sources, and that's a good thing, but maybe the problem was that we were being led by sources that were from the perspective of the, mm. the, the colonisers and those involved in empire, and we weren't hearing the voices of those who were dispossessed or who had the violence inflicted on them. Absolutely. Winners write the history and control that narrative. And I think really it's, it's what we're missing are the, are the voices from the margins, whether it be the colonised themselves. There's a very important work by Gerald Farrell, who actually was a PhD student of Mihol's, who really captures the voices of the colonised in Ulster. Uh, in my book, I try to capture the voices of women because they uh, don't exist uh, uh, sort of from a legal perspective. Uh, a woman basically is the chattel of her husband, her father. It's only widows that would have sort of a more independent uh, legal existence. And so they've been sort of hiding in plain sight now uh, in the sources. And the question then is, Patrick, how do we retrieve their lived experiences? Because something like the 1641 deposition tells us, on the one hand, about women who were colonisers. It tells us about the women who were colonised. We have their voices, not as many of them. But actually, even in the portrayals of, say, Irish-speaking Catholic women, uh, uh, it's very clear to see how they uh, deploy agency. Uh, uh, the colonists may not like it, but you do see them actually uh, uh, in, in very clearly uh, through some of these sources. And we as historians have just simply not really engaged 
with the material. The depositions are hugely important, but literary sources are also hugely important as well. And I've been struck by how many uh, uh, literary texts from the 17th century actually are looking at, if you want, empire through the lens of women and gender. Uh, And it wasn't something, again, I think the literary scholars have been ahead of the game in how they've been interpreting this material, but I found it incredibly valuable here as I've begun this. And I have another big, big project uh, called Voices, uh, which is funded by the European Commission, that really will spend the next five years really focusing in on the lived experience of non-elite, ordinary women in the context of Ireland, but then also looking to compare uh, with, for example, the Spanish colonial uh, uh, experience or or, or Portuguese uh, Brazil. Uh, And what I'm interested in doing is those, so the the nitty gritty of the lived experience, because many of these women uh, actually come to the fore during a period of war because the men are gone. So all of a sudden, these women are left running the show and their exp- their, their stories uh, as carers, um, of course, um, as, as providers. Uh, they manage their estates and farms in terms of the elite. But but very ordinary women are, are just coming out from the shadows uh, dur- during this period of war. Many, of course, are victims of violence and we see this in the world today. Uh, they in an Irish context in the 1640s, are ex- they're stripped, they're robbed, uh, they're obviously um, uh, experiencing extreme sexual violence uh, as well. So, uh, you know, we really need to recover the totality of this story. And in terms of transmission and preserving culture and language and a way of life, women are crucially, you show how women are so so crucially involved in that. Absolutely. They are critical because they're the homemakers. They're the ones that are really, especially in this period, uh, keeping a household Catholic. I think they're very important in terms of language, the Irish language. And many Protestant settlers will, if you want, uh, have their uh, uh, children uh, uh, breastfed, a wet nurse uh, uh, who's an Irish woman. And uh, so somebody at Robert Boyle is bilingual. He learns Irish uh, from from his wet nurse. So I, I think this, uh, and, and that's why the English are so feel so threatened. So you see these English commentators feeling desperately threatened by uh, Irish women who they see as politically uh, as subversive um, and they're constantly denigrating them um, uh, in, 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 in very, very, uh, uh, you know, portraying them very, very negatively indeed. And Jane, you mentioned 17th century literary sources, but one thing that really struck me in your book is how brilliantly you use Brian Friel's work and you tie that in and and uh, and the way he recreates the 17th century and provides a new way of thinking about it and engaging with it. Um, it P- Patrick, back in 2021, when I was invited to give the forwards, I thought, oh my God, how am I actually going to frame these six lectures? And I was, um, uh, it was during the pandemic and I, I, I was in Donegal and my neighbours happened to be Brian Friel's nieces and Stephen Ray, the actor, is another neighbour. And it was actually Stephen Ray who was talking about making history and I was like, oh my God, that's it. That's what I need to do is use Friel's writings to help me frame these six lectures because I think what the uh, playwright can do is allow us to imagine conversations. Obviously, it's not fact, but it it brings a a life and an energy uh, to it. And obviously, making history is set 
1603 uh, at the end of the Nine Years' War with the great Hugh O'Neill. And it's a play about language, a play about identity. And these issues are so important today as they were, of course, in in the 17th century. So I I found that very, very, um, I mean, it, it really helped me as I was thinking about these issues. Michal, how do we engage with the issue of, of Irish involved willingly in, in, in empire and in the worst aspects of empire, the Amritsar massacre in India or, uh, you know, so many parts of the, the colonisation of India and where you have Irish, Irish people deliberately inflicting violence on others and justifying it and standing over it? Yeah, I mean, it's an uncomfortable uh, reality, uh, Patrick, and at some point running away from it. I mean, it's there, and and, and I suppose you you mentioned earlier some of the, the the social media sort of anger with when this is brought up. In fairness, it's not difficult to get people angry on social media; they'll get angry <laughs> about anything. But you know, they they were getting angry about this because, as you said, it doesn't really fit the the broader narrative of uh, you know Ireland as a victim, as the you know sort of uh, oppressed. Uh, peoples, etc., that you had individuals. But to me, there's no contradiction here at all. I mean, that there are a handful of individuals who are, you know, using empire to further their own individual, uh, you know, sort of lives and careers. Of course this happens. It happens at every level. I mean, you have it during the famine in the 1840s, you know, land age, Catholic land agents working on behalf of, of absentee landlords. I mean, it doesn't mean, therefore, the Irish Catholics are, are culpable uh, and responsible for the famine. I mean, you know, it, it's it's a strange kind of argument, but I think why it causes such anger is because it is so... It, it's a dissonant sort of sound in this kind of bigger picture and narrative of where Ireland fits in with empire. And so these individuals, when they pop up, somewhere like Amritsar and that shameful, disgraceful massacre that took place there, the fact that there's a, an Irish Catholic from Tipperary as governor there, that 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 doesn't sound right to people. You sort of saying, well, that's not who we'd expect to be there. And so it 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 doesn't it doesn't sit well with us. But to me, it doesn't really change the narrative. It doesn't change the overall picture. I mean, it's that individual was there and a particularly nasty and unpleasant man. But, you know, that 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 really is, in my view, irrelevant to the, the, the wider picture that we need to be discussing. And it goes back, I suppose, to the point that, that Brian made. I was very interested to these connections with, with ancient Rome. And he says how now people have moved beyond, if you like, you know, whether the Roman Empire was, you know, particularly violent or, or unpleasant or nasty or uh, uh, etc., um, and we're looking at things in a much more interesting way. And Jane has obviously outlined, you know, women being one of the areas which really has grown exponentially in the last decade, due in part to, to a lot of the work that Jane's been doing. So we're 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 approaching more interesting subjects. We've got a spoiler alert: like, you know, was the British Empire violent, exploitative, discriminatory? Yes, it was. There we go. But these, you know, Irish Catholic individuals appearing, you know, at, at moments in empire. These are the sort of things we need to be thinking about and addressing and then broader cultural issues, issues of gender. Th- these are the ways we now need to, to address. And what about the naming and denaming of things? Is that maybe tying ourselves up in some of these uh, side alleys or going down these side alleys? Because... I, I kind of found that debate got so polarised. I didn't really agree with the extremists on either side, those who were determined to keep, say, the name of the Barclay Library or those who felt that this was the most pressing issue of our time, that it had to be denamed. That that I thought both sides seemed to lose some kind of sense of perspective. No, I, I, I would agree. I mean, I think, actually, by the way, I think it's just called the library now. So uh, we, we've decided that that's, that's the safest we can come up with. So we're just calling it the library. Um, I, you know, and I think Brian mentioned this, that the problem is that if we say move from Berkeley and say we're not naming it the Berkeley Library anymore, we're going to name it 
the ex-library after somebody else. And in 30 years, you know, with changes in society and how we view things, then that person is going to be problematic and we're changing again. But in a way, you know, that just reflects changes in society as we go along. We've had denaming going on in Ireland for quite some time with our streets. We've had mm-hmm. statues being taken down already long, long before what's been going on with, with the, the current, uh, you know, removal of statues. You know, statues most famously being blown up, be it Nelson's Column or, or whatever. So, you know, this is a process and, and I think we need to see it as a process. We, we haven't reached the end. We now know, so therefore we can do what we like to do and we, we, we have the story. We're in, we're, we're in a process and we're just carrying on and continuing with it and in our wake it'll change again from, from here on in. Well, we're talking history and we're debating Ireland and Empire. We're going to continue that debate right after this. Welcome back. We're talking history and we're debating Ireland and Empire. I'm rejoined by my expert panel, Professor Jane Olmar, Erasmus Smith Professor of Modern History at Trinity College Dublin and the author of the new book, Making Empire, Ireland, Imperialism and the Early Modern World. Professor Brian McGing, Regis Professor of Greek Emeritus at Trinity College Dublin and Professor Mihola Shukru, Head of the School of Histories and Humanities at Trinity College Dublin. Jane, you can't really tell the story of Ireland and Empire without uh, spending a lot of time talking and thinking about India because that's a real central part in terms of what the Empire did and I suppose what Irish people also were engaged with. Patrick, uh, uh, Ireland was England's oldest colony and of course India was its largest And it's very interesting because Irish engagement with India through the East India Company actually began in the 1660s and 1670s when a man called Gerald Anger, as of Anger Street in Dublin, um, actually became the founding father of that amazing city, Mumbai, which was called Bombay. Uh, And he planted, civilised, in inverted commas, and colonised Bombay as his grandfathers, uh, one of whom was a legal imperialist, the other the Archbishop of Dublin, had colonised and grabbed lands in Ireland. So for me, it's very interesting to see what Anger does in Bombay. And that was the beginning of a very long-term relationship between Ireland and uh, India. Um, And then, of course, when we come into the 18th and 19th century, it's important to remember that two-thirds of the British army in India were Irish and largely Irish Catholics. I was in Delhi recently and I went to the Christian uh, graveyard where a man called John Nicholson, who was born in Dublin uh, and whose statue is in Lisburn. Now, this man was part of the officer elite. He was an imperial psychopath. Anyway, he's buried there and the graves around him are butlers, uh, Burns, O'Grady's. I mean... Kerwins. It's just littered with Irish uh, uh, names and not just uh, uh, the men, but they're women folk. And when we think of Rudyard Kipling, that great, sort of, he was that bard of empire um, and his most famous imperial novel, it's about Kimball O'Hara, the son of an Irish sergeant and an Irish domestic servant. So Ireland and empire are very closely intertwined and In the 1890s, that high point of the British Empire, there were um, eight presidencies in India. Seven of the eight were governed by Irishmen. Now, obviously, coming from that Protestant Anglo-Irish elite, and they saw India through the prism 
uh, of Ireland and they were deeply worried by the rise of, of home rule and constitutional nationalism. And then, of course, as we move into uh, the early 20th century, Irish Republican nationalism um, profoundly influences uh, the Indians. And basically, Ireland teaches India the ABC of freedom fighting. And uh, uh, figures uh, like uh, uh, Eamon de Valera, Michael Collins, these are great uh, heroes, especially amongst the Bengali uh, nationalists. Uh, so it's really interesting to see how that relationship has uh, really, it spans over 400 years. And of course, here we are today uh, with Atishak, who, um, whose father is from Pune, outside Mumbai. So it's, 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 again, a very, very interesting story. And Brian, listening to the conversation, it really brings home to me just how important it is to be, to engage with our history in a truthful, open way and not be taken in by the propaganda or the, uh, the idealisation of the past. And, you know, you talked about how the British Empire in the 19th century so shaped by their view and their idealised view of the Roman Empire. I'm thinking, I teach America, I wonder, you know, I suspect you see the same thing there when America pursues its own empire and gets involved in, you know, mistakes like Vietnam and so on. Mm-hmm. They idealised Rome as well and it was crucially there in the foundation of the United States and that uh, their misreading of the past ended up really uh, leading them down into uh, very dark places uh, in in the present. Well, I, I mean, I think you're right. The failure to consult the past honestly is something that is becoming more widespread. The failure to consult the past, honestly, is 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 a real challenge to our future welfare, I think. And Michal, it is very much tied up with debates about today and where we go, whether it's Ireland or, or the UK post-Brexit or whatever, that uh, how people view the past seems to be so crucial and so tied up in their identity and their view of the world that, you know, sometimes they don't want to acknowledge the, the uncomfortable aspects. No, absolutely. And I, I think... Maybe Jane mentioned the very beginning of our our conversation, um, Patrick, about the need for you know a mature conversation about this. And, and what really strikes me, and you listen to a lot of the the discussion in the UK or in the US, it's anything but mature. I mean, there's a lot of shouting going on on both sides, and nobody's really listening. Uh, and so it, it's not really moving forward at all. And and somehow. We've managed, for the most part, I think, here in Ireland, at least to have a fairly mature discussion about these things. There's obviously disagreements and, and fairly severe disagreements on, on aspects of this, as, as there should be, as you'd expect. But I think we have to be able to have these discussions. And it struck me when I was listening, talking about making um, history, the, the Brian Friel play, and Jane using in the context of the 17th century. To me, that play is actually about the Troubles. <laughs> it's not actually about the 17th century. So again, it's just how you choose to read it. I mean, people will interpret it in different ways and look at it in different ways. And I think it's a sign of a, a great piece of literature or a great play that it can be read in that so many different ways and can be interpreted in so many ways. And it's one thing I think that here in Ireland we do very well. Uh, and I think the literature has been a, a huge boost in terms of the historical studies as well, that we have this enormous uh, amount of literature that we can also engage with and deal with that gives us really fascinating insights into what was going on and the different nuance and layers of what was going on. And the literature can be a very, very important part of that. And I just finished with one point, we're talking about India and saying how important, and India absolutely is centre. It's the jewel of the crown, it's the the centre of the empire. In the 17th century, that's Ireland's role. 
Ireland is the jewel in the crown. Ireland is where they get the money. Ireland is how they get the rocket fuel to invest in slaves, in sugar, in the Indian trade, etc. And bluntly put, there would have been no English stroke British Empire without Ireland. I mean, Ireland is what gives England the decisive advantage over its continental neighbours. So England proves really adept at exploiting these places, be it Ireland into the 17th century and there into India in the 18th and 19th century and doing it extraordinarily well. Well, Jane, I'm going to leave the last word to you. It's a more complicated Irish story, but I think it's a better story and it's a more truthful one. And the fact that it is complicated, well, I think it it helps us better engage with other parts of the world because they also have complicated histories and complicated stories. And by sharing ours, I think something more meaningful can emerge. And that is the hope, Patrick. And just to pick up uh, on what Mihol is saying, it's about having a robust conversation, but one based on evidence and also a respectful one and, and listening. And I think if we can do that here in Ireland, maybe others will actually pay attention. Uh, I've been very struck. I wrote some of this book when I was in South Africa in Cape Town. Um, and Mandela, OK, the, the uh, Statue of Rhodes came down, but Mandela said, we're going to leave the others. Why? Because we must never forget the past. So it's not about uh, 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 sugarcoating. It's about having that honest discussion in, a, an, in an informed and respectful way. And I think that's an excellent note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to Professor Jane Olmar, Erasmus Smith Professor of Modern History at Trinity College Dublin and the author of the book we were discussing tonight, Making Empire, Ireland, Imperialism and the Early Modern World, published in hardback by Oxford University Press. Also joined and delighted to have been joined by Professor Brian McGing, Regis Professor of Greek Emeritus at Trinity College Dublin and an expert on ancient imperialism and Professor Mihola Shukru, the head of the School of Histories and Humanities at Trinity College Dublin. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marais O'Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.